everyone. Welcome to episode 30 of Sisters Coffee and Crime. I'm Sandra, and today I'm actually recording this one alone. Christina will be back next time. Just before we start, I want to say that we are going to be releasing episodes now every other week just due to life and scheduling. This is a lot to take on, actually. So anyhow, today we are going to talk about the murder of Christine Jessup. Now, I wasn't going to cover this case because it was so heavily covered by so many podcasts that I know, but I just seem to keep coming back to it every time that I look for a new murder. Christine Jessup's case comes up when I'm sort of going down the internet trail. And with the very, very recent update, I thought, you know what? There's no better time to dive into the Christine Jessup case than right now. Now, Christine was supposed to meet up with a friend at the park nearby her house, but she never actually made it there. What happened to Christine that afternoon in 1984? Let's grab some coffee and talk about this crime. Christine Jessup grew up in a small town, well, small in the 80s. She grew up in Queensville, which is located just outside of Toronto. And at the time, it was a very small, quaint little town. She was a normal, happy young girl. She actually wanted to be a veterinarian. Christine loved animals. And she had a little dog, it was a beagle, named Freckles, which I think there is something so sweet about that. She was born on November 29th, 1974. She lived with her parents, Robert and Janet Jessup, along with her older brother, Ken. Now, on the day of Christine's disappearance, it was a normal day for the girl. She went to school on the bus, and while at school, she made plans to meet up with one of her friends at a local park. Now, after school on October 3rd, 1984, Christine gets back on the bus and drops her off at a regular stop. And when she gets home, she gets the mail, she goes inside, she drops the mail on the counter, and she leaves her knapsack there. And then Christina's off, seemingly to meet her friend at the park. The last known sighting of Christine is between 4 and 4.30. A store owner says that she dropped in to buy some bubble gum. Now, Janet and Ken were out running errands that day, and they visited Robert, Christine's dad, He was actually at a detention center in Toronto. He was serving a sentence for some fraud charges and Janet didn't want Christine to go with them. She thought she was just too young. Now when Janet and Ken get home, they notice that the bag and the mail are there. So the obvious conclusion is that Christine was home, but she must have gone out again. Now there was no real panic at the beginning. It wasn't unusual for Christine to go and play with her friends after school and before dinner. Now, as time goes by, Janet starts to wonder where Christine is. So she calls some of her friends and she asks around to neighbors if they've seen her. By evening, Janet does start to get worried because Christine hasn't returned for dinner. And this is what's unusual. Like Christine should be home by dinner time. Now, the call to police is placed somewhere between 7 and 8 that night. Now, the police, along with some neighbors, begin to search for Christine that very night, October 3rd. And that search is going to grow exponentially by the days. There's hundreds of people searching fields for Christine. And it actually lasted three months. 
December 31st, 1984, Christine's body was found. It was found just outside of Queensville in a field about 50 kilometers, which is like roughly 30 miles from where she lived. Christine was raped and stabbed multiple times. Christine's funeral was open to the public with around 250 people. Many of Christine's school friends attended. The Jessops did it this way, you know, keeping it open to the public to thank them for supporting them and going out to search with them. Christine's body was laid to rest in a cemetery that's adjacent to the Jessop home. The investigation starts to zero in on a man named Guy Paul Morin. He's a neighbor of the Jessops, and he doesn't have a lot of interaction with the family or Christine specifically. He's a 24-year-old man who worked sanding furniture. He lives with his parents right next door to the Jessop family. Now, Guy didn't participate in the search for Christine or attend her funeral, and police will later say that this was a red flag. Now, they actually started to look at him because of an interview that they had with Janet. She says that their, her neighbor, Guy, is kind of a weird guy who keeps to himself. So, Guy, why is he described as strange by Janet and other neighbors? Well, he's a clarinet player and he keeps bees. Along with being quiet and minding his own business, this makes him strange. I don't know. Everything is 2020 in hindsight, right? I mean, not talking to your neighbors in the 80s, even now, is kind of strange <laughs> here. I mean, I do live outside of Toronto, so it is kind of strange to never have any interaction with your neighbors. Now, when police hear that there is a, you know, weird, and I keep doing that in quotations, like I'm quoting weird type guy living next door, they think, oh, maybe this is our break. Maybe this weird guy who lived there would know Christine's routine and know when he can get to Christine alone. Now, please do interview Guy Paul and I said guy and I meant Guy, <laughs> sorry. Police interview Guy Paul and they even pose as a hairstylist during one of his brand, uh, band practices and they manage to get one of his hairs. Now they compare this hair to one found on Christine's necklace and it is said to be microscopically similar. They get a search warrant for Guy's car and home and they find that there's clothing fibers that are also similar to Christine's clothing fibers, which, I mean, this now, I don't think, I think hair, I don't know if they still do that same thing. I think they just use DNA. But the hair similarity, uh, I know that there was another case where they used the hair similarity and it led to a wrongful conviction as well. Now, there was a, an FBI actually profile done on the killer, but it kind of is tainted because of them zeroing in on Guy Paul Moran. Like they started using things that they knew about him to sort of give the FBI information, which is horrible. But they say that the killer would be 
uh, from Queensville, that he knew Christine and Christine knew him like they had interactions. He's local. He's between the age of 19 and 26. He's a white male. He didn't have a high school education. And the killer would most likely believe that he is superior to most other people. Now, I mean, with a few, I think like maybe the believing that he's superior to other people, they really are trying to describe Morin. The police believe that the murder happened when the killer assault, sexually assaulted Christine. He doesn't get, they say he doesn't get the reaction that he wanted. I don't know what they mean by the reaction that he wanted, but he gets mad, loses control, and he kills her. They say that he didn't necessarily start the abduction thinking in his head that he was going to kill Christine. Now, Guy Paul was arrested shortly after the warrants were issued. He was actually arrested on his way to Stouffville for a band practice. Now, when Guy was arrested, the town felt just better, like they could breathe again. Justice was going to be served for Christine. And I actually have a little clip from a, a news interview that's they're like interviewing people on the street just to see their reaction to his arrest. So here goes. They uh, more or less felt that they didn't know if it was safe for their children to be out on the street. I think uh, people are uh, quite relieved on the whole that the arrest has been made. During the trial, the hair, the clothing fibers, a forensic expert, and a timeline that shows Guy had the opportunity to leave work and get to Christine before Janet and Ken arrived home that afternoon were all presented. A man named Robert May says that while Guy was in jail, he was in the, the next cell and he hears Guy saying, quote, Oh, why did I do it? I did it. I killed the little girl. All while he was crying. They also put an undercover police officer in the jail where Guy Paul Morin was. And he says that Guy confessed to him. The quote is that Guy says, quote, to red rum the innocent is my cure, end quote. And red rum backwards is murder. Now, throughout his trial, he remains oddly calm. Now, his attorney does something that is so strange. He ad admits that Guy Paul Morin is actually schizophrenic. And he says his client did not commit the murder. But if you believe that he did commit the murder, he still can't be found guilty by reason of insanity. Which kind of sounds in like a roundabout way that you believe that he did commit the murder, right? This was so strange to me, and I do not believe that it helped his cause in any way. Now, actually, in this trial, he was acquitted. And you're going to hear, I'm going to play you a little bit of his reaction of the acquittal. And it's, it's strange. I mean, if you watch it, you can watch it on YouTube. His actions, it's just very weird. I can see why people think that he's a, you know, quote, strange kind of guy. 
I still had the feeling of positive. When you do something that is not wrong, if you do not do anything of wrong, then there's no reason for you to be convicted. And when you heard not guilty, what went through your mind? As is. Now, the Jessups really believed that Guy Paul was the murderer of their daughter, so this was really, really difficult, especially since he's living right next door. Now, of course, they appeal this verdict, and the Supreme Court found that the judge in the case didn't explain reasonable doubt properly to the jury, and another trial is order. Guy Paul Moran is arrested again, and a second trial happens. His plea is still not guilty. This trial goes on for nine months. Now, in this trial, actually, the evidence, the case kind of starts to fall apart. You know, his punch card at work says that he left at 4.15. And in the initial reports, it said that the Jessups came home at 4.10. Now, they changed their story at the trial. And actually, years later, Ken and Janet both say that they were encouraged by the police to change their time. And... I don't blame the Jessups at all. They truly believe that he killed Christine. And the police are basically telling them, you know what, maybe your clocks are wrong. Maybe you're just not remembering properly. And this is why they changed their story. Even though deep down, I think they knew. But I believe that they thought they were doing the right thing. Now... Those jailhouse informants that testified at the second trial, Robert May, he does come back, but during trial, he's deemed a pathological liar. And years later, he'll say that he heard something from Guy Paul Moran, but he's not sure what that something was. He eventually does admit that he was trying to cut a deal for a better sentence, which is not all that surprising from jailhouse informants. I mean, it's one of the things that the Innocent Project looks for when they're taking a case on is whether or not jailhouse informants were used. The hair that was linked to him, it's eventually said that it's not really a match. And actually, they tested it to some people that were in the class of Christine Jessup. And apparently, they were matches for those children that were in the class. Now... In the second trial, Guy Paul is actually found guilty, which is surprising because the first trial seemed so airtight and everyone believed that he was guilty and he was acquitted. And in the second trial, the public and everyone is starting to believe that he's not guilty and feels like everything is falling apart, but he's found guilty. Now this shakes uh, Guy Paul Moran and he yells in court, I didn't do this. After 10 years, Guy Paul Moran is freed due to DNA evidence. It wasn't really a thing in 1985 and it was beginning to get used in the 90s and they got uh, the courts to allow them to retest the evidence and they did. And this is a blow to the Jessup family because... Now they're kind of back at square one. They they really thought that he committed the murder and now they just realize that after 10 years, the murderer is still out there. 
Well, this case goes cold. After this, the police have no leads. They didn't really know where to go from here. This case remained unsolved for 35 years, which is crazy. On October 15th, 2020, police announced through genealogy that they found Christine Jessup's killer. Calvin Hoover was responsible for Christine's murder. He was a friend and neighbor of the Jessups. His wife was a co-worker of Robert Jessup. Ken says in an interview, quote, they were friends and Christine and I would go down and play with their kids. Even 35 years later, you think about it every day. Was it this person? From day one, I truly believed it was someone who knew our family, knew my dad was in jail and knew we were going to visit him that day without Christine, end quote. This is really tragic that they finally find out who killed Christine and he's never going to spend one day in jail for it because he had committed suicide a few years ago. It's great that they're using genealogy in this way to, you know, solve cold cases and that makes me happy, but there's no justice in this case. Christine got really lost because of what happened to Guy Paul Moran and he should be vindicated and, you know, let out. And I'm glad of what happened after he was exonerated. You know, they they really started to look at the tactics that they use and, you know, trying to make it not happen again. That's great. But what about Christine? Unfortunately, she got lost in it. And it happens in so many cases. It ends up being about the person who committed the crime or... A wrongful conviction and the person who was the victim the person that it should be about it's not and that to me is the biggest biggest tragedy here so that's it that is the murder of christine jessup thank you so much for tuning in if you could go onto Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and review, that would be perfect. We would absolutely love that. But follow us at on IG at sisters.coffee.and.crime. That is actually kind of hard to say. We will be back next, not next week, in two weeks we will be back. We're probably going to start releasing our episodes on Tuesdays. So from Sandra, thank you guys so much for listening. Grab a cup of coffee and stay safe. Bye guys.